There's a line in every city that separates the rich from the poor, the strong from the weak, the haves from the have-nots. It's a street, the train tracks, a river, a sidewalk. It's time to cross the line. Serve the City is a global movement of volunteers showing kindness in personal ways to people in need. We are the connection between the good intentions and talents of people who could volunteer and a meaningful opportunity to get involved. Serve the City is for everyone. It's a revolution, a serving revolution. And it's going to change the world. Cross the line, serve the city. Welcome to the second season of Serving Stories, a podcast by Serve the City. Hi, I'm your host, Ani Deal. In our new season, we will be traveling around the world to see how the values of Serve the City, humility, compassion, respect, courage, love, and hope, play out in serving stories from many contexts. And in this episode, we're going to discover how crossing the line with respect can be the beginning of transformation. Listen closely. What do you hear? In this spacious room in the former Jewish quarter of Krakow, Poland, all is calm, all is bright. Picture five Serve the City volunteers sitting at a long table laden with a variety of craft materials. Colored paper and fabric, scissors and all kinds of pens and pencils, and other materials clearly rescued from the recycle bin. The sounds you hear are the combination of soft Christmas music and the diligent efforts of five people making beautiful and creative Christmas cards as they exchange materials and ideas. Yes, I'm trying to make um, a tree, a Christmas tree, out of little, I don't know how to call this, diamonds? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, pink ones, and that, that's gonna be all. Well, it looks like Travis and I are having the same idea of making this Christmas tree with ornaments. Yeah, so out of the egg carton that's, that's been cut like a tree, I've drawn a star on top, and a little trunk to the tree. And I'm going to put more stuff for the background to make it look like a starry night or something. Five volunteers is a somewhat small number for a typical Serve the City project, but newly rigorous COVID rules in Poland mean that numbers have to be limited. The volunteers introduce themselves. My name is Magda. My name is Asha. My name is Małgosia. My my name is Szymon. My name is Travis. Travis Mielonen, the only non-Polish one of the group, is the director of Serve the City Krakow. He explained to us how they adapted the original idea for today's project to the new circumstances. Yeah, so um, we make cards today for... It started off with the idea for the women at a women's shelter. I think we're pretty sure it's the only women's shelter in the city. The idea, originally we were going to go there and make the cards with them and probably do a dinner too. Uh, but of course, because of COVID, that's not happening now. Gosha had the original project idea, and she and her friend Asha are the ones who have collected all the amazing materials on the table. But Gosha has heard that she might still be able to go to the shelter herself, and she has big plans for the Advent season. Yeah, I would like to continue and to not just us doing the cards, but do with them again, just, you know, get in touch, talk to them, get to know them. Um, I've been told that they can be very crunchy and not friendly at the beginning, but if you continue coming and if you just be with them and take them as they are, they open after a while and if they like a workshop like that, they ask then after the lady, they are like, oh, when when is it going to be again? And that's a very good sign if they start asking, but at the beginning they might not show any interest. They would just only do. So I've been prepared. Let's see. It seems like a small thing making Christmas cards for and with people, but it is a small thing done to honor and acknowledge a group of people who, though highly visible, are treated as invisible. Magda, a core team member of Serve the City Krakow, describes the issue. Homelessness uh, in Krakow, I think, is a fairly big problem. Uh, It's a big city, so there are a lot of 
people that I've encountered, especially in this park that is close to the city center. You can walk and sometimes even on every other bench there's somebody that either is just uh, drunk or has some, or maybe it's just addicted and doesn't have a home. I know a few by their names and I see them over and over, but I don't have like, it's mostly just chatting with them. You know, there's a guy named Artur who's very uh, uh, loud <laughs> when he sees people he knows. So, but my Polish isn't so great, so it's always this funny mix of Polish and English. He tries his English out all the time. It's usually the same phrase all the time. What's up? How are you doing? <laughs> you know, things like this. Yeah, it's fun. So Artur is my, my uh, planted pal. <laughs> There's a, a park around the main, uh, around the old city called the Planty, and that's where he is, usually. With homelessness being such a problem in Krakow, Serve the City has focused many of their projects on these people that others treat as invisible. Often these projects are done through partnerships. Yeah, so many of our receiving partners, the ones that we actually serve for, they've all been working with the homeless for the most part, uh, homeless shelters. And there was this one project that we did with international students from uh, Warsaw. They came and we made uh, pierogi, which is our Polish national dish, uh, together with the ladies. And that was very, um, I think, very meaningful for them. I had a lot of great conversations with them. And also it was very cool to watch uh, these young students. They were, I think, 13, 14. Uh, and they didn't speak much Polish, most of them. Uh, and then them trying to communicate with the ladies through Google Translate or um, uh, the ladies would try if they knew a little bit of English or I would translate. So that was a very great time. But other times, the encounters are just one-on-one, -on -one, an attempt to make invisible people feel seen. Most of the um, projects with the homeless people were uh, just making sandwiches for them and uh, hang, handing them out on the streets and then also trying to talk to them. So not only giving them the food, but also trying to connect and uh, show them that we love them and we want them to feel loved and that they are valuable people because I think it may be, might, sometimes it might be lonely. It's just you have so many people passing by and nobody wants to talk to you. What I remember from like talking to the people is I believe many of them are very sensitive people and life is to them so hard that things have happened in their lives that they cannot deal with mm -hmm. and they, they get lost emotionally and then they get lost to addictions mm. and then they are lost. It's like sometimes you talk to people and they are without any hope and you talk to them and you can sense that they value so much that you talk to them because mostly they will tell me, you know, I'm invisible, mm. nobody sees me, I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm stinking and nobody sees me. Yeah, that's what I associate with people, that they have a need to be seen. What a terrible feeling it is that nobody sees me. And unlike the homeless population in many other European cities, this group is not composed mostly of foreign migrants. The majority of the people are Polish, um, the majority of like, homeless people. Um, I guess now uh, more and more people, um, homeless people, might be from Ukraine because we have a lot of immigrants from there. But I don't know. I would say mostly Polish. Asha reminisces about one of the first projects they did as Serve the City Krakow. It was an event for homeless people where the volunteers not only served a nice lunch, but also offered free haircuts and showers and clothes they could take with them. But in the midst of these good intentions, Asha remembered what impacted her the most. What struck me at that project was that actually not that many uh, 
homeless people came. And I think one of the things is fear, because even those who showed up, mm -hmm. they waited on the outside. Mm -hmm. Even even though the, the gate was open, everything was open, we had to actually, somebody had to go out and ask them in. They would, like, they would gather there, but then they would not step in uh, until they were invited. Why, faced with generosity, would these homeless people not want to come? Travis explored this a bit more. My understanding is that the general profile of a homeless person here is uh, they've been disconnected from their family either because they did something really bad, they, you know, lost their job and then got drunk and then became an alcoholic and they were disowned from their family. That's a lot of the stories of the, of the men, particularly, and the young men. I mean, I've met 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds. They just get kicked out of their families. Um, it's basically excommunicated. Uh, and that in this society, that is absolutely 100%, I think, one of the hardest things to deal with. Because your family is where your connections are and your connections for all kinds of things. It's all in the family. And Gosha remembered some men that she met at a Christmas Eve dinner in a shelter. So they, they had families in Krakow. Some of them are even like from Navahuta. Navahuta is a very special district and people were poor and many people from there were addicted in the past. So like, these are kids of maybe alcoholics who are, yeah, who, mm -hmm. who turned into alcohol when they were adults. And now they have kids and grandchildren they never meet. And one man told me he would be so ashamed to get in touch with his daughter. So he just prefers to live in this uh, homeless shelter, has his own bed, like, and um, to three or four kilometers away, his daughter and his family lives. But hmm. because of the past, because of the things he did to the family, he maybe he abandoned them, etc. He wouldn't bear to get in touch with them. Mm -hmm. The shame is so strong. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's some of these people, they are very, um, how say, honorable, like, you know, honor is important yes. to them. Mm -hmm. And they mm -hmm. knew that they mistreated somebody yeah. or, the, or that they made mistakes, big mistakes. There's just the, the shame of carrying that I've made such a mistake. Now I need to live a life where I'm paying for it. I've heard that from men so many, and the women. They're paying for something. And often they even believe God has done this to them. And that's their life now, is to live this way for the thing they did. Um, they've not experienced grace. They've not experienced mercy. The shame that these men and women feel erases their sense of self-respect, or even the ability to believe that anyone else could ever respect them. And as Brene Brown, an American sociologist, says... Shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of change. And then you begin to try and talk with them and connect and even give them a little bit of hope. And sometimes it's, they have a hard time receiving it. The receiving of that, even receiving help, is shameful. Receiving something for nothing. No, what can I do for you? I need to make this up. I need to help. I can't pay you, but I need to do this thing. Um, yeah, it's incredibly hard to work through it. It's so good to talk to them, but not only talk, we need to live it to them. What is grace? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. grace is not only to the people who have a nice job and a nice house and maybe kids and a car and a dog. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's open to all of us. Grace is open to all of us. Respect can be offered to people who feel unseen, invisible. And hope for change can become possible. Hearing about homeless people who felt ashamed to go back to the families they disappointed reminded us of a remarkable story we heard last year. This is a story we heard when we were making our Serve the City Brussels episode, featuring a street breakfast project feeding homeless migrants living in a park. Carlton Deal and David Anderson, former leaders of this Brussels project, told us about an unusual volunteer who turned up to feed the people in the park. 
uh, one morning I was serving sandwiches and um, this older German lady started talking to me and um, I, I wasn't sure why she was there. At first I thought maybe she was a volunteer or um, I wasn't sure why she was there. And her name was Hilda and uh, I was thankful that she was there, didn't know where she came from. I mean, normally volunteers sign up, you know, they register, they have to go to some little info session or something, but Hilda just appeared. So we're like, great, you know, Hilda, thanks for joining us as a volunteer. And she came around behind the table and she was helping us. But as time went on, we recognized, wait a minute, why does Hilda have those bags with her? Wait, hold on, let me take a closer look. We realized Hilda was living on the street. So this lady is 67 years old. She's got her trolley and everything she owns in it, and she's living in the train station. And it just, I'm thinking, this could be my mother, right? I mean, it's not some abstract person, homeless person. This is a lady that I'm talking to. So Hilda is like a 70-year-old German lady who's living on the streets in Brussels. And this just was not okay. And one of our other volunteers, Carol, who realized this, said, Hilda, you're coming home with me. So Carol just put Hilda in her car. And Carol was such a sweetheart. She realized what a desperate situation this lady was in. So she took her home with her and said, you can stay at my house, which was a wonderful idea at the moment. But oftentimes, good ideas turn more difficult. And after about three weeks, um, Carol came to me and served the city and she said, I can't keep doing this because I'm going on holiday and I don't want this lady staying at my house if I'm not there. And frankly, this lady's not the easiest person to get along with. So um, Service City started saying, well, we, we can't let this lady go back on the street because by then she had been coming every week and helping us. She was a friend of ours. So we called our NGO partners and one of them has transition housing and Nativitas. And so they were happy to keep Hilda and we paid for Hilda to stay there. And then our volunteers and our leaders would go visit Hilda on a at least weekly basis and bring food. And, and the whole time we were like, Hilda, why don't you just go back to Germany? And she would tell us about, she can't go back. And we were trying to find out her, her backstory, but clearly there were broken relationships in particular in her family. A couple months later, we got a phone call from Germany from a, a civic club um, that her sister was in, looking for Hilda, and somehow knew to contact Serve the City. And so we started trying to make efforts to get this German lady connected with her sister so she could get some help. We wanted uh, this German lady to go back to Germany where she could get a pension and, and actually get some stability in her life. And we said that to Hilda, and we encouraged her to return, but she, but she wouldn't. And to be honest, at this point, we might have been enabling Hilda by continuing to pay for this transition housing. You know, anybody that lives on the street has the potential to have some mental illness issues. And when you're dealing with people, you have to realize that maybe they have some thoughts and ideas that aren't exactly accurate, but drives their behavior. Sometimes showing respect means encouraging them to see clearly and face their shadows. It means also supporting them as they learn to respect themselves and make hard decisions. So we decided that's it. Like, we're going to pay for one more month. And we, we gave her that warning. Hilda, at the end of this month, that's it. You know, you have to decide what are your best options. Go back to Germany, go back to the street. I don't know, but we're not going to pay it anymore. And it was hard to say that to her. Of course, we didn't want her back on the streets. Um, but we did want her to, you know, make the choice to return to Germany. And, um, and we had to say this more than once, and she didn't believe us. So we even moved her out of the transition housing and gave her another few days. And so it took a lot of time with this lady to convince her after reaching, we reached out to her sister and tried to create some reconciliation. But to make a long story short, this lady went back to Germany and now she's living there and um, she's not living in the train station anymore. And she reunited with her sister and now she's enrolled in social assistance in Germany. And not once, but repeatedly, she sends us thank you cards and little uh, merci chocolates, like these little chocolates that say merci, like thank you for caring for me. Not just thank you for helping me get off the street, but thank you for helping me reconcile with my sister in my country. Shame is the enemy of self-respect and also of good relationships. This little story of Hilda returning home from Brussels represents a victory of reconciled relationship over shame. But shame is not the only thing that makes homeless and vulnerable people invisible. 
It is also a result of the lack of respect paid them by those who feel like they have their lives together. Failure to see these people as worthy of honor blinds the eyes of those who count themselves more fortunate or perhaps more virtuous. Travis recounted the story of how his eyes were opened to the honor of the needy as he worked with a community development program in the U.S. before he moved to Poland six years ago. Yeah, it was so humbling just to understand that I made a lot of assumptions. You know, I thought, okay, they're just uneducated. They're uh, unwilling, unable to, you know, do the hard work or whatever it is. Because kind of a big lie, at least in my my original mentality, was, you know, work hard and things happen. Well, it's not always true. A lot of people work really, really hard and stuff doesn't change for them because they're in a situation where they can't get the resources, get the opportunities. So uh, that was a major thing. And that's when a lot of stuff started clicking in my mind. Like, wow, people really need other people to help them, to come around them. So uh, I knew one of the big things I wanted to do when we moved to Poland in 2014 was do something that had to do with connecting with the community that way, um, trying to give them opportunity, understand things. Helping people understand that people need other people to come around them turned out to be a particular challenge in a post-communist culture where the state was expected to meet the needs of the needy. I think uh, the post-communist mindset, uh, typically, particularly older people, is that you know the, the government takes care of these people. The, there's people that do this. It's not my job. You know, um, even picking up garbage, I've seen this where they're like, well, there's people to do that. Why would we go pick up garbage? <laughs> the idea of volunteering is not common either. Most of the people that do help with the homeless are being paid to work with the homeless. And even homeless people that they see on the streets, I think often they feel like, well, they'll, they'll be taken care of. They're not going to die this way. In fact, though, there is the possibility of the homeless dying on the streets especially during the frigid Polish winters. The Krakow volunteers discussed this as they made their Christmas cards. As far as I understand, there's only around 700 beds, and there's 5,000 or more homeless people, though. Um, so there's always a shortage of beds in the winter, particularly, um, because the winters do get cold here. Thanks. So... Um, yeah, and you do hear really sad stories, especially when it gets really cold, of people finding frozen bodies of homeless people on the streets. In uh, the shelters that I know, not that there are many, but um, they have rules. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, they will not take a person who uh, drinks alcohol. Mm -hmm. So that that's a... Uh, that, that's something that people do not want to go with sometimes. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the only other option for them is to stay in the street. As, as many people know, that when you drink, you have a false sense of security and feeling warm and, and all of this, too. Plus, there's an addiction to it, too. Mm -hmm. The problem is, um, I believe it's very hard to get a place in there. They need to... They always need, every day, if they have not um, a constant place, they need to leave the place um, in the morning and they can come back at around 4 and then they queue again mm -hmm. because they have not, you know, their own bed and they sleep uh, exactly from 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So the earlier you, you are there, the better for you and um, if the fool is placed, they won't take you, and they won't take you if you have had a beer. Because on the one hand, of course, they need to be strict, but then you know there are so many obstacles. Uh, if you already, if you have difficulties with with alcohol, Gosha knew of only one place where those who were intoxicated could go to spend the night. I I know a place where they could go and just sleep. You know the how do you say in English? You know, um, sleep it out, right. and then get they will be washed, etc. Get washed, etc. Uh, the only place I think of is prison. Did you catch that? The only place to sober up is prison. Of course, there are some quote respectable members of society that feel prison is where these people belong. 
Yeah, I think the reputation often is that they're alcoholics, they're violent, they're misfits, the, you know, they don't belong in society for various reasons. Um, they're addicted, you know, or they're, I once heard a volunteer say, oh, I think they're just addicted to, to the aid, to the help. And I was like, eh, it, uh, unpack that for me. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I understand what you're trying to say there. Um, they felt like the more you help, the more they, they just get stuck in this cycle. While yes, there's some definite issues with, with doing help just for the sake of help, you know, um, but that kind of dehumanizes the whole thing. You know, they still need a human interaction. What do we do, just ignore them? Let them freeze on the street in the winter? This reaction is reinforced by the fact that it is not only the ashamed alcoholics who think they are being justly punished for their mistakes. Many respectable people feel they have earned their fate as well. In general, the culture even sees it this way. They've done something. They're paying for it. And that in itself is something super hard to work through. Why would I help somebody when they're doing what they're supposed to do? This is not a judgment limited to the Polish culture. Whether needy people are deserving or undeserving of help is hotly debated around the world. And even when help is offered, the sense of judgment is naturally felt by homeless people. This explains Asha's story of why their first homeless project attracted so few comers. And this is true as Serve the City brings volunteers into shelters as well. And I think at the same time, it's, you know, when the outside world comes in, um, they're not sure if they're being judged. They don't know if they're uh, just being pitied. Um, they don't know if they're being just a, a project, you know, to be done and have something and get their social work out of the way or whatever. Um, and that's something we've had to tread carefully with when we bring in um, corporate partners uh, because often it is kind of a check mark for them get their 15 hours or whatever in we asked travis what did he do to help develop respect in volunteers how did he help them to learn to see these people differently his first response was don't just do the task interact with the people you're serving for volunteers to understand how to respect someone that's completely different than themselves and has a usually a very different lifestyle, life uh, background story, um, they really can't imagine often what that looks like. So we often uh, say, hey, just smile at them. Uh, introduce yourself like you would introduce yourself to anyone else. When we're talking about serving people, like doing a dinner, you know, we often ask, say, go sit down with them too. You know, be with them. Uh, don't just bring them dishes and try to hide in the kitchen. This is a big challenge almost every time we've done dinners, especially for new, new uh, volunteers. It is so easy to have a transactional approach to volunteering, to just meet the physical need at hand and miss the opportunity to meet more personal needs. And during this time of pandemic, this has become more challenging, even for experienced volunteers who might normally try to interact. Asha reflected on this. A week ago, maybe? A man approached me and he asked me to buy him something uh, warm to eat. And uh, so I was like, okay, where do you want the food from? And he said, oh, here is the uh, place. So he wanted something warm. But what I, what, what I mean, he didn't have a mask on. So I went in the restaurant. I ordered the food for him. I asked the lady to, to bring it out for him. And... Uh, and, and then, I, then I gave him the receipt and um, I told him that she would bring the food out for him. Um, and then I went on uh, my way and then I thought I, that I didn't, yeah, that I didn't even have that conversation with him. I, was, I, sort of, I sort of concentrated on doing what he asked me to do. Respect is built as we step out from our comfort zone to not just give, but to interact with people different from ourselves. And the next step from there is to listen without judgment to their stories. Ask people what their names are. Ask them their story. Don't give advice. <laughs> uh, try to hear them and just ask more questions. Just ask questions. Don't try to say, oh, I understand. Please don't use this phrase <laughs> because often if you don't even prompt those things, people fall into this, oh, I'm so sorry, 
I'm so sorry for that. But if you ask them, ask them questions, then stories come out and other things. Sometimes you're not sure about the story. <laughs> you know, is it real? I don't know. <laughs> um, but it's, it's just, it helps them feel human. Magda, the core team member we heard from earlier, is a young graduate student with a bright smile and a deep personal faith. She told us how her faith helped her to listen to the stories of homeless people with respect instead of evaluation or judgment. The stories that I hear on the streets um, sometimes are hard to discern whether they are true or not because some people are just drunk or they have some mental problems. So you can't believe um, some of them. and sometimes I just pray, okay, like God, what is true? What this person is telling me is, is that um, something that was true about her or his life? The act of listening with empathy for the truth of the person behind the stories is an act of deepest respect. To quote Brene Brown again, if we can share our story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding, shame can't survive. I remember this one time I was walking um, in one of uh, these parks here. Um, It was actually Women's International Day. Um, And I was asking God if I could maybe talk to somebody. I had a free afternoon. And there was this homeless um, guy sitting on a bench. uh, And somehow I just felt that I would just sit down and uh, talk to him. So I did, and I asked him how he was, um, and he just started telling me his story. He moved here uh, to Krakow, and um, he doesn't have contact with his family. Um, So then I asked him if I could pray for anything. Um, It was very surprising to him that I asked that, and uh, he thought that he needs to pray and do something. I was like, no, I'll just pray for you if that's okay. I said, yes. And then he gave me a chocolate because it was Women's Day, so that was very sweet. Gosha told a story about how a few friends from her church got involved with a homeless man in his 60s. Their respect and care for him changed his life. They prayed for him a lot uh, because he was at the edge of of his life. He was supposed to to die. He believed he would lose his uh, feet and they would be... um, um, amputated. Amputated. And um, now he even left a shelter because he um, was lucky to have the possibility to live in a social flat. So he shares the flat with three other men. The people in this group are very responsive to this man's needs. And um, yeah, we get in touch with him. So last time I saw his backpack was really bad, like... You couldn't really close it, and um, so yeah, I asked just on the chat if somebody has an old backpack, and I received three, and if I needed, there would be more coming. <laughs> and then Gosha told us another part of the story that gave us a third source of respect, especially the kind of self-respect that overcomes shame. It was something that this formerly homeless man talks about all the time. He likes to talk about um, like how he's trying to get engaged like in, in a social project where they give food to other people. So he is doing kind of charity work himself. He's not being paid for it, he's just a volunteer. But you can tell it, it's so important to him because he gets out of the flat. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he can really tell that uh, yeah, he, he's useful and um, because he is an invalid um, because of the legs. Um, the only thing that he does there is just counting the portions that they are that they are being given away. But it is important. Somebody needs to count the portions. So it's it's really great when he talks about his job and um, yeah. Sometimes the most respectful thing we can do for someone is to offer them the chance to use their abilities to give back. For people who have had nothing, the ability to be generous makes them feel rich. For someone whose life has felt purposeless, volunteering can be a road to finding new purpose and self-respect. 
To explore further this connection between empowerment and respect, we now travel to another city where Serve the City is active, Nairobi, Kenya. The slums of Nairobi have been the focus of a great deal of charity work, both by NGOs and volunteers. And still, sometimes the problems seem intractable, no matter how much money is spent or hours are donated. But change is being made through empowerment of slum residents, especially women. We talked with Janet Mwendwa, who works with a charity called African Enterprise, one of Serve the City's main partners in Africa. She oversees the coordination of development projects in the 12 African countries where African Enterprise works, including some in her own home city of Nairobi. She described a very special project called the Matare Women Project. Uh, Matare Women Project is a project of African Enterprise. Uh, it targets vulnerable and needy women in the slum areas of Nairobi. And um, some of them have been uh, involved in commercial sex work. Others are vulnerable. Others are living with HIV AIDS. And um, others are widowed, single mothers. And they are a mixture. So they come in um, and we train them on tailoring skills. We also train them on running businesses so that uh, once they are done with the training, you can start your own business. The products that the women learn to sew during the training are sold both locally and through branches of their charity overseas. But half the money made from their sales is kept back for the women so that when they leave the training, they have a seed fund to begin their business if they choose. Others use the excellent skills they have learned to join companies that make popular African fabric goods for export. So we basically empower them socially by just giving them a home and environment to have a sense of belonging, spiritually and economically through the skills that we give them. Yeah, so we have had quite a number of graduates over the years, uh, some running very successful businesses, others also employed and uh, growing up in their careers of sewing. And um, it's, it's just amazing to see how lives are transformed and their families have been transformed through this program. The respect given through the training program helps these women from the most vulnerable sectors of the city to be able to stand on their own two feet, able to embrace a purpose and support their families. Janet told us the story of one woman named Helen. One of them uh, came to the program when uh, she was actually like in her final stages of HIV, her husband had just died and um, she, was, she was so vulnerable. It looked like she was losing her life in the next day or two. Actually, we had to take her to hospital like almost on a daily basis. And she had given up. She saw like she was done with life. The staff prayed with her counseled her, encouraged her. And uh, as we speak today, Helen uh, is still alive, like almost 20 years down the line. And uh, she has had to educate her children from uh, the earnings of mother and women. And now she's actually running her own business and uh, healthy as we talk. This was not the only success story Janet told us. Here's another about a young girl named Sabina. She was so desperate. They had had uh, several attacks as a family and uh, came from a very poor family. Looking at how she joined Madara Women, how she looked when she came in, she was so down. You couldn't even imagine anything good could come out of her. But today she's running a normal life and we didn't know she actually had a gift and um uh, uh, Sabina, to date, uh, she's running a very successful business. She usually does wedding clothes, and uh, she gets very big tenders. Now she has a family. She had a great wedding and all that. And whenever we visit her, she has so much work. You have to book an appointment to see her, and that's our joy because she's so busy, and um, she does a great wedding clothes. Clearly, the Matare Women Project is already having a major transformational impact on the lives and self-respect of these women. And a few years ago, 
Janet discovered another opportunity to offer the ladies. I got to interact more with Carlton Deal, uh, who is the founder of Serve the City, uh, during one of the a program that was organized by African Enterprise called the Movement Day Africa. He was one of the speakers and I created interest because I realized that the city is doing quite similar things with what African Enterprise does. And African Enterprise is uh, very keen on partnerships as well as serve the city. And that's how we found ourselves together. The idea that came out of this meeting was something Janet referred to repeatedly as a game changer. And on this particular time, Serve the City came up with the idea of where we go to minister to the ladies and give them something they could have for a meal and to use at home. They were invited by Serve the City to actually be part of uh, the volunteers that were, were cleaning their, their, their community. The effect on the women was remarkable. And they were so happy. And I still remember some of their feedback uh, after we did the work. They said first, they did not know they can actually make a difference in their locality or in their community. Secondly, they felt that they were appreciated, that they could give back to the community. And thirdly, they said they would actually be the people to do it going forward and to make a difference in their communities. They are going out to just ask the government to, to allocate resources for their place to be clean, something they would never have thought before. They didn't, they always thought people should come and help them. But this time around, Serve the City challenged them to be part of the change in their community. And I think that was a game changer for them. The Matare women had discovered that they could not only impact their own families, but also the community and environment where they lived. Matare um, women, the women uh, asked us would want to be part of the volunteer team of Serve the City. And uh, we had this project in an orphanage and uh, we were going to give food, cook for the, the children, sing with them, be with them over Christmas. And Madare women tagged along. They came in their numbers. And um, one of the things they did, they told us they thought actually volunteering goes hand in hand with giving money. And that's how they thought they had nothing to give back to the community. But this time they were busy cleaning the rooms for the, the orphans and the cleaning their clothes. And we told them that's actually volunteering. And they were so happy that they could actually give back to the community. The 2018 UN report on the state of the world volunteerism describes volunteerism as a critical resource for community resilience. But it also notes the scarcity of formal volunteering opportunities in low-income contexts. No wonder the Matare women thought that volunteering and giving money were the same thing. So um, I think in the informal settlements, uh, as the UN report quotes, mo most of them do not have the formal volunteering opportunities and uh, they don't think they are, they are for them. I mean, it, they are outside them. It's for the big people, those people we, who have the money, they come in and do what they think they can do best. But I think um, the opportunity to volunteer and serve was a, a game changer for them. That's what I would say. They felt respected. And even themselves, they started respecting themselves after participating in those um, projects. When COVID came along, another African enterprise project found themselves the beneficiaries of the Matare women's volunteering efforts in a clinic, in a hospital clinic run by African Enterprise. We realized that many, many patients were coming without masks because uh, many, many families in that area earn less than a dollar in a day. And when you ask them, they will ask you, will you high prioritize putting food on my table or buying a mask for every member of the family. So you'd find them coming for medical services at the clinic without masks. 
and we realized that uh, the, the, the staff members were exposed to infections. The Matari women found a way to put their newfound opportunity to serve together with the skills that African Enterprise had been teaching them. And uh, Madara women said, well, we are going to also make masks which we could go and, and uh, distribute, you know, and uh, have every patient who comes to the clinic, they are handed over a mask to take care of themselves. And Madara women was there with us because, you know, they used their skills. While the material, the fabric was funded, they used their skill to make the masks and they made a difference. So I think I'm so challenged by Madara women and I am so grateful to serve the city for helping uh, African enterprise see another way of helping these women. And I think um, they, they are going to be instrument of change in their community. Now, these women are part of another community, a volunteer community where their efforts are as valuable as anyone else's. I also think the collaborations um, strengthen relationships um, uh, because for us now, when all the other the other volunteers we have inside the city, when uh, Madara women comes in, they, they feel they are also giving something and uh, it strengthens their relationship. Now they feel they have something to offer. So their courage has been built. And uh, when they interact with somebody, because some of our volunteers have senior people in the government and a lady from Matare Women in Korogosho, Matare, will come. And we are doing the same work. And um, it gives them a lot of courage just to know that they can interact and still deliver at that level. So there's respect and also courage. When a formerly destitute woman from the slums can hold her own with a senior member of government, respect has been gained. I think the partnership between Matara women and Sub the city is um, an opportunity for empowerment of the people from the low-income areas just to, to serve. They, they feel empowered. They get to realize that it's actually not that hard. You can, uh, you can actually reach out. So those opportunities of volunteering are uh, empowerment opportunities for such groups. And like now, I would say... Madara women now, they have the energy. They are the ones asking us, so when is the next project? So what are we going to do? They, they feel they are empowered to actually participate. Respect is one of Serve the City's six values, but it is also a basic need for all people. The Krakow team expressed this in many heartfelt ways. We never know what difference we make uh, in somebody's life. And sometimes it might be just a short conversation with somebody that shows them that we care and that they're valuable and that we want to know their story. We need to see them on the same level. We need to go down if they are smaller than us. It's like with kids. We need to look to them from eye to eye. It's like to see them on the same level and treat them as one of ours. What we're doing here is to see more um, people's hearts change for seeing dignity in everyone. I don't believe respect is earned. I believe respect is simply unconditional. Everyone deserves respect. Trust is what's earned. Trust is very different. And I think people mix up trust and respect. And to respect every person that you see on the streets, wherever you are, regardless of anything, political, nationality, ethnicity, whatever the issue could be, you know, if we started with, no, I have to give them respect. They are human. Then I think we could get going with some conversations and get some work done. <laughs> I'm sitting here with founder and director of Serve the City International, Carlton Deal. Hi, Carlton. Hi, Annie. Nice to see you again on this new season of Serving Stories. Nice to be back. Nice to be back. 
So this first episode, we talked about respect. Is there a particular story that touched you in this episode? Well, it's hard not to be touched by each of them. I, uh, I, I know the Matari uh, community, so I can picture that, and, and I know Janet well. Uh, of course, Hilda, you know, I, that was an important story for me. But I didn't know the story that Gosha shared, and uh, that was so touching to hear what an impact respect made in that guy's life. Yeah, very beautiful. Him mm. also finding his purpose, right? Yeah. And contributing in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just so amazing. And I think for me, respect and disrespect, maybe sometimes it's a bit like light and darkness. You know, you know, you don't know what darkness is except the absence of light. And I think many of us who fe- who generally experience respect in our lives don't really even know what disrespect feels like or only very occasionally know. But Imagine that's the way that people treat you every day, and then someone comes along and offers respect. Like, that that's just transformational. And I think this episode is a good example of why what we like about small things, you know, why we're not embarrassed to offer small acts of kindness, because they, they convey powerful things like respect that just can be transformational. Absolutely. That is that is exactly what we've been seeing in this episode. Um, so, And respect is one of these key values mm. that we have here with Serve the City. Can you tell me a little bit more about why that is? Yeah, I... Um... You know, people people need food, but they more than that, they need they need deep and profound personal care and attention. Like each person, as as many of us believe in serve the city, is is made in the in the image of God and has a kind of a divinity about them. Like a, there's a sacredness to each individual person. There's human dignity that must be at the core of our interactions with one another. And, uh, and I think that's what Serve the City gives volunteers the opportunity, opportunity to do, is to recognize the dignity of another human being. Restoring that yeah. in them. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Carlton. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Serving Stories. I have been your host, Ani Deal. Serving Stories today was written and produced by Shannon Deal. Original music and technical production by Parker Deal. Design by Jeremy Malingro. Special thanks to Travis Milonen, director of Serve the City Krakow, and Janet Mwendwa of Serve the City Nairobi and their partner African Enterprise for their inspiring stories. Join us next time on Serving Stories when we will explore how the value of humility empowers volunteering and how even the smallest and youngest of volunteers can make an enormous difference. Um, yeah, volunteering is for kids is much better than just playing on the Xbox all day. If you want to find out more about Serve the City and how to get involved in a project near you, visit servethecity.net. Keep on serving and sharing your stories. Mm-hmm.